Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled Accuracy. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verses 22 to 28, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. My father was both a farmer, but he also worked as a carpenter. He was trained in Europe. Allow me to boast about him for a bit. Wherever my father built a house, you could hang a plumb line on any wall, and it would be true. You know, my father believed his trade ought to reflect precision at every level. He was not going to leave out one step in the complete process. He believed that people who would live in houses that he had built would be pleased that he had taken no shortcuts or that there were defects in it or that he had simply not taken the kind of care he would have taken if it was his own house. He believed that wherever he measured, it would be exact, never approximate. Accuracy was very important to him. I know there are all sorts of people who feel that about their trades or professions, whatever they are. I mean, who wants a doctor who simply says, well, that'd be good enough. Who wouldn't want that attitude with anyone who's a road builder, a dentist, you know, the manufacturer of a motor vehicle, a teacher in a classroom. Rather than saying good enough, we should all aim at very good, as good as I am able. I find the same attitude must come to play when it comes to preaching or teaching of Scripture. I mean, after all, if one's an instructor of the Christian faith, one must remember that those who instruct you know, are not the authors of the Christian faith. Rather, for those who teach, it's our task to pass on that faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And furthermore, what's at stake in our teaching may well be the eternal well-being of our hearers. See, I often remind myself that if I had only been a medical doctor, what would have been at stake is the person's physical life. That's A very serious matter, but how much more serious are the eternal souls of those who hear? And for that reason, every teacher of the Word must labor to be precise, accurate when it comes to their explanations of Scripture. Good enough ought never to pass from the mouth of a Bible teacher. You know, as we study the book of Acts today, we're going to come upon a man named Apollos. He's gifted, he's articulate, he's an orator but he has huge gaps in his understanding of the Christian faith. Now, does that sound familiar? Well, it does. And so what we will learn about him will be a wonderful lesson to anyone who feels called to teach the Word, and also for those who feel called to listen to those who teach the Word. I guess I mean it has something to say for all of us. And before we come to the story of Apollos, let's take note that we're now coming to a new chapter in the ministry of Paul. He's about to embark on his third missionary journey. So Acts 18, 22 to 23. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening all the disciples. Now Luke gives us almost no information about why Paul sailed to Caesarea rather than finding a vessel that would sail directly to Antioch on the Syrian coast. And I mention Syria because Acts 18 verse 18 says that Paul set sail for Syria. He had in mind to go back to his home church in Antioch, the church that had sent him out in the first place. He was going to go back and report all that occurred as he had preached the gospel and one church after another had been formed. 
But then without explanation, Luke says he sailed for Caesarea, which is a port city in Israel. We do know that when Luke says he greeted the church there, I mean, we think he must have spent some time in that church. I mean, after all, by this time, Caesarea would have had a flourishing church. And we know that because according to Acts 8 verse 40, the evangelist Philip had initially spent time preaching there. And according to Acts 10, Peter had gone there to preach the gospel to a Roman centurion. So that's the place where the Gentile mission was born. And so since the Gentile mission began in Caesarea, I mean, we'd have to expect that of all churches, that one, I would have had a keen interest in the Greeks that had come to Christ, into the churches that had been formed among them, that they were faithful to the Lord Jesus. You know, some scholars speculate that Paul might have also spent time in Jerusalem while he was there, and that he had visited with James and whatever apostles were there at the time. And I I suppose that's possible. It's really speculation since Luke doesn't even mention it. We do know, however, that, that Paul had a rich and a warm relationship with the other apostles, and he would certainly have wanted to meet with whoever was there. I mean, nonetheless, he's on his way to the church that sent him to Antioch. That would have been somewhere around a 500-kilometer trip from Caesarea, and so we have to think this indeed would have taken him some time. So when he arrives, the only information that Luke gives us as to what happened when Paul came to his home church in Antioch is that he spent time with the believers there. You know, it's hard to say what Luke meant by some time. I mean, some scholars speculate that he has spent at least a half a year there, and again, we have no way of knowing that. No doubt the church would have, you know, talked about, you know, this rapid spread of the gospel into the Gentile world and what that meant. And no doubt, you know, people wanted to hear how all the the churches were faring. I mean, were they being persecuted? I mean, who was leading them and the good news of Jesus? I mean, was it being accurately taught? Or were there false teachers creeping in? How could they pray more effectively for these churches? How could they partner with these churches? Should they be sending more teachers and preachers to these churches? But the time had come, Paul needed to go again. And where would he be going this time? And I have no doubt, because of his short stay in Ephesus, Paul had been itching to get back to that city. He'd left Priscilla and Aquila there, and he must have felt urgency to go back. But at first, Paul returns to the regions of Galatia and Perga, and those regions were the first place where he had begun his missionary work. You know, back then he was with Barnabas, and that was so long ago now, but Paul never stopped being interested in those churches. And while writing the Corinthian Christians later, Paul would say, and here I'm quoting his words in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And that's what drove Paul. Before he could trace out new places to preach the gospel, he had to go back and make sure the churches that he had already planted were doing well. And so with that as his motivation, Paul begins his third missionary journey. Now at this moment, Luke for the first time switches from Paul in Galatia and Pamphylia to Aquila and Priscilla. You remember Paul had left them in Ephesus. No doubt Luke does that to prepare us for what's to come in that city. But it also instructs us, telling us that Paul is not the only missionary moving from city to city in order to preach the gospel. And with that, I hope you can spot a problem as well as an opportunity. You know, at this point in time, the New Testament had not been written. 
Very little of it was written, and what was written was in the hands of very, very few people. Almost everything that was being taught about Jesus had come because they had heard it from other teachers and not because they had written material. But there are many who had not been formally trained in Christian teaching, so the matter is chaotic. It's not unlike what it is today in any situation, you know, where the gospel is rapidly advancing in a culture that's never heard before and where training is so badly needed. Well, let's continue to read Acts 18, 24 to 26. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I hope you caught a few key words. The first is accurately, and then we come to two words, more accurately. You know, in short, what Apollos was teaching was indeed the true gospel, but there was so much more that he could have been teaching. And in his case, it was probably true that he didn't know what he didn't know. He was doing well with what he had. He just needed more information about Jesus, more truths that his hearers needed to hear, but the preacher himself didn't know. know, We'll talk about the details about that in just a little while, but but I hope you can see the application. Every good preacher seeks to be a learner for a lifetime. And in most cases, that will include more formal as well as informal training as well. Take more Bible classes. Learn the skills of Bible interpretation in a more precise manner. Take courses on biblical theology. Get acquainted with the original languages. But of course, also learn about how to be a more effective minister of the gospel in your local church. But where there is no appetite for this, where there's little interest in learning what has up to now not been known, well, not only does the preacher suffer, but also the hearers. And for that reason, good churches will work with their pastor to always make sure that he's getting ongoing and helpful training. In the end, everyone's going to be benefited. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth and Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, Visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. 
Let's see if we can learn as much as we can about this man named Apollos. Luke tells us he's a Jew. He also tells us that he was from an Egyptian city of Alexandria. Well, scholars estimate that as many as a million Jews lived in Egypt during that time and that, to the most part, those Jews spoke the Greek language only. And for that reason, Alexandria had become the first place in the world in all of history that produced a translation of the Bible. It was the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, a version that we now call the Septuagint. Alexandria, the city of Egyptian learning and education, also had an enormous synagogue. It was so large that it actually stood on a massive platform, and on the inside it was so large that people had signal flags in it so that those in the back could join in on the amends so the flags would go up and everyone would say amen. Well, furthermore, Alexandria was considered as the seat of learning in the Roman Empire. We have to assume that the Apollos that Luke describes here would likely have been an educated man and who was more than likely to have been trained in both Jewish and the Greek schools of Alexandria. And when Luke says he was competent in scriptures, we assume that he has demonstrated his mastery of the Old Testament, that he was an expert in biblical interpretation. And so for Luke, that was a formal term. Just as Paul was trained as a scholar, Apollos would have been as well. But Luke lifts the curtain and tells us a little more about Apollos. Luke tells us that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So there were Christians who had instructed him about Jesus. We don't know who, but there were. So the answer as to who they were must go back all the way to the time of Pentecost, you know, when the Holy Spirit first fell on the church and the church was created. There in Acts 2 verse 10, we read that there were pilgrims there from Egypt who would have come to know Christ there. They would have stayed in Jerusalem for some time, and then they would have returned to their native Alexandria. There's a Western text of Acts that includes a line. It's not found in the original Acts account, but it's no doubt an explanatory line. It says, Apollos had been instructed in his own country, the word of the Lord. Notice that whenever we read the word of the Lord, we're talking about Jesus. Now, again, I would only be guessing if I you know, were to try to understand how he was taught. But there's something troubling that we know about history from Alexandria. Those of you who know something about it will immediately know that Alexandria had an aberrant form of Christianity, and it was influenced by the Greek philosophy of Gnosticism. I won't go into all the details about Gnosticism, but the Gnostics denied the importance of the body, and there were certain kinds of Gnostics who believed that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He only appeared to have come in the flesh. That's why later the Apostle John would write that very famous line in 1 John 4, verses 2 to 3, where he would write, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So it would seem that whoever had instructed Apollos about Jesus, it doesn't seem they were in the Gnostic camp. Because Luke tells us he taught the way of Jesus accurately. That is, whatever information Apollos had about Jesus, he was carefully teaching the truth. He wasn't using conjecture, and he was certainly not teaching Jesus according to Greek philosophy. He was teaching the real historical Jesus, and here now is where it gets complicated. The text says he knew only the baptism of John, and so it would seem to me that Apollos had come to genuine faith in Christ. He had a zeal for Christ, and furthermore, because he was an excellent orator, 
You know, I don't know, but perhaps he was trained in oratory, but however it came to be, he had outstanding speaking abilities, and he was using the gifts he had to make Christ known as widely as possible. And if Apollos had truly come to know Christ, and that's most certainly the case, then we assume that he was also, however, unbaptized. And also because the next section, that is, when we come to Acts 19, where we'll encounter some disciples who were baptized into the ministry of John, but not into the name of Jesus, who didn't have the Holy Spirit, Apollos was not the same as them. Apollos was a true follower of Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, but he'd never been instructed in the nature of Christian baptism. Now, we've been talking about what we know about this man, Apollos. But here, let me add one more thing, and it's very important. Apollos is humble. He's teachable. And so let's see if we can recreate the scene. Before Apollos arrived at Ephesus, Paul had already been there. You're going to remember, he wasn't there long. He was going back to Antioch. But Paul had spent time in the synagogue at Ephesus, and perhaps he was there for several weeks, and each week, taking the Jews there through the Old Testament, teaching how Jesus fulfilled the longings of Scripture. And then Paul had left. The synagogue there, unlike other places, had not risen up against Paul, and so there was still a hunger to hear more about Jesus. And with that, Apollos, educated, articulate, a man whose heart was aflamed for Jesus, entered the city. He was, of course, invited to preach. And, of course, Aquila and Priscilla, who had witnessed the ministry of Paul in Corinth for a year and a half, and who were under the teaching of Paul for that entire time, hear Apollos, and they're thrilled to hear him. Apollos, an able defender of Jesus the Messiah. Apollos clearly had, as Luke describes him, a fervent spirit for Jesus. But he had gaps in his training. But if he was humble, and if he was willing to learn, this couple could put him into seminary and finish off his training. And Apollos was humble. I love the way Luke describes it. It says, Priscilla and Aquila took him, that is, they took him aside, no doubt. They explained who they were, and they said they would explain the way more accurately. And incidentally, by putting Priscilla's name first, I have to assume that she was the more able theologian of that couple. And that surely would not have bothered Apollos. He was humble. Teach me, he says, and they do. Now, by the way, I have no doubt in teaching Apollos the truths around Christian baptism that it was this godly couple that would have baptized Apollos. And then what follows from that is really a wonderful story. And one more matter before we move on. When I said that Priscilla would surely have played a major role in the training of Apollos, I don't mean to imply, therefore, that she was in some way a pastor in that city. See, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, that matter is settled there. Now, I'm not making this a, you know, a teaching on the role of women in the church, but I do note that the prohibition in 1 Timothy does not prevent a woman from training Apollos in a private setting. So let's be clear. There's so much to learn about the faith from both men and from women. I'm a complementarian who believes that in the assembled, gathered church of Christ, God gives men and women complementary roles, but that does not mean that women do not have a teaching role. But let's not get distracted from our text. Let's continue on as we read about Apollos, Acts 18, 27 to 28. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace 
had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Well, now, what was awaiting Apollos in Achaia? Now, if you've been following this series on Acts, you're going to immediately know that Achaia was the province of southern Greece. We also remember that the city of Corinth was the most important city of Greece in that time. And you also know that Paul had just spent 18 months there establishing a church, which was a very fast-growing and effective church. And Apollos goes to Corinth. Wonderful! But tragically, we also know that, you know, when the church in Corinth divided into four factions, Apollos had nothing in the world to do with creating those factions, but people used his name to create them. But there was a positive side. We remember that in Corinth, the law forbade the persecution of Christians. And Apollos' keen intellect, his ability to speak, his mastery of Scripture, and most of all, his accurate knowledge of the gospel greatly helped those who through grace believed. And all this through a man who at one very crucial point in his life was humble enough to learn the Word of God more accurately from a couple who worked as tent makers. It's a wonderful thing when powerful preachers of the Word will admit They're never done with learning and with growing in the scriptures. It's wonderful to see highly effective pastors who glorify God through their ministry and who work with all their might so that they might preach the word ever more accurately. Through history, God has gifted the church with many men like Apollos, but he has also gifted the church with many who would help the Apollos of this world to learn the Word of God more accurately and increase their effectiveness as preachers of the Word of God. Thanks for your message, John. John, let me ask you, should the local church be better supporting pastors in their continuing growth as teachers and and preachers? It seems many congregations are either reluctant or don't find it necessary to invest in the growth of their leaders. Or heavens to Betsy's, how much is this going to impact our budget, right? I mean, all that kind of stuff. And we need to ask ourselves, um, do you think that when your pastor first comes to you um, that he has all the training that is required? Or do you think that uh, he should continue to learn and to grow because This thing about the glories of our salvation is so profound. Um, How can we do anything else but to invest in what we must hear? Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Neufeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, 
This is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.